Welcome back to another very hot, sweaty episode <laughs> of DSLR Film New Podcast, where Devin and I are both uh, suffering in the heat waves that have hit both of our cities. I'm in Portland, and it is currently a record, uh, I think, 90 degrees, something like that. Devin, what about you, man? You got the windows open, uh, I can hear the birds chirping. Yeah, it's mostly just, it's average. It's just that Chicago hot and humid. We, you know, luckily enough, got to skip through spring, so... Uh, we don't have any nice days. We had about three of them, and now it's hot. Now, before we dive into the news, Devin, it's been, what, like two or three weeks since you've been on the show? It has been. What it has you, been a long time. What have you been doing, man? <laughs> uh, you know, just more of the same, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know. I've been totally uh, swamped with a lot of different projects, um, and none of them interesting, and a lot of like studio work. Um, and I think now um, my schedule switching over to about seven days a week. So five days will be like studio engineering and two days the weekend will be tech directing. So it's a pretty intense schedule. Now I see you've got a switcher in front of you there, Devin. What is, what is going on with that uh, thing? Duct tape to your, to your board, duct tape to my board. What are you talking about? You're talking about this over here. Yeah, right there. Touch it. It's not duct taped. I actually have a, a tablet mount. That I put that in. Oh, that's a, a yeah. sort of official looking. Yeah, it's a, it's an official. Uh, I don't know what you call it. I'd move it closer, but you you can't. Um, uh, yeah, this is one of those X keys things. I actually thought I had another one around here. I don't. Um, I use it for uh, basically editing, like any kind of complicated things. Uh, using auto hotkey scripts and things like that, I can be like apply this effect preset to the currently selected clip and make that all turn like five button presses into one. So it just it speeds up. The more and more I uh, edit, as much as I don't like editing, uh, the more I'm trying to optimize it so I spend less time editing. So I've been experimenting with that as well as it helps with a few other things like uh, if I'm streaming or something like that, I can call up music cues and other things. So it's super handy, but the X keys are also super expensive. Uh, like one of those, which this is a 60 key, runs for about $230. Nice. So <laughs> it's... It's expensive, but there's a lot of programmability to it. Um, their software kind of stinks. I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I know they always say, oh, contact our support. We'll figure it out. Uh, their support's always like, oh, yeah, there's some problems with Windows 10. Just run it in administrator mode, and it doesn't fix anything. So <laughs> it's it's been quirky, but uh, I've been trying to do my best with it. Uh, other than that, once you, if you decide to program it hardware-wise, it acts like a physical keyboard. So you can plug it into any computer without any software, and it does whatever keystrokes you program to it. So in that case, it, it can be like the most reliable piece of hardware to interface with, as reliable as your normal keyboard is, because that's exactly how it acts. And that's one of the great features of it, is that if you don't care about advanced things like launching shortcuts or browser keys or things like that, you can set it up to uh, just do keyboard commands, and then you can plug it into anything. You can plug it into a Mac, a Linux machine, doesn't matter. It's going to do those keyboard commands. Now, one more thing, and I kind of stole this from you a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Devin was going to be on a show, and then he couldn't make it because the schedule changes. You saw that remote controller. It was like an Xbox controller that had been programmed as oh, yeah. an editing yeah. interface. What do you think I about that? that? Is that is that a way you would actually <laughs> practically edit? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I think that's absolutely stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not it's not a bad idea. Um the uh, what's good about it is that it's incorporating uh some analog controls into editing, uh which is kind of a different way to think about it than a mouse. 
typically, though, a mouse is still going to give you finer precision in terms of moving around your workspace uh, as a way, I guess, to refer to it. But with the key, uh, with those keypads, even with the modifier keys, you're really limiting uh, what you're able to do. And I guess if you all you're doing is like logging footage and doing a basic cut, then you can get everything done on a keypad, and that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, if you're like on a plane or something like that, or you could sit in front of your TV and edit something together. But for me personally, it's like I have a bazillion keys that do a bazillion things, and then I have a shift that modifies all those bazillion keys to do other things. And to try to narrow that all down to like 12 or so buttons uh, just wouldn't be enough for me because there's too much jumping around the keyboard that I do in order to edit fast and efficiently. All right. Well, that's uh, pretty exciting. I love uh, specialty keyboards and all kinds of editing stuff. Um, That is not the way I'm ever going to edit, honestly. That note, let's move on to something else. Uh, Let's try and do the news here. Time for the news. All right, first up is actually CPU news. If you are looking for a new editing station, the biggest, the baddest, and the most awesome CPU in the consumer market is now going to hit the Newegg's and Amazon's near you. We're talking about the Broadwell i7 6950X 10-core CPU. This guy will set you back somewhere in the range of $1,500 to $1,700. Has all the threads, and of course, it is clocked at a little bit lower speed with all the cores, so your single-threaded performance isn't going to be amazing. You will have to upgrade to DDR4 memory. Devin, at a price uh, this expensive, what do you think about upgrading your CPU to something this fancy? And actually, in general, what are you editing on right now? Uh, I'm editing on an ancient uh, 2700K. Oh, whoa. Uh, which go- yeah, I know, which goes for probably uh, under $200 now if you looked on eBay. But uh, for me, not yet being necessarily totally in the 4K camp, uh, not that I'm opposed to it, but just haven't had a need for it. Uh, the 2700, most H.264 encodings, even with color correction, happen at about real time. Though uh, when I'm really feeling it is when you're I'm doing that After Effects render and there's motion blur and other elements like that. The 2700 uh, really struggles with that, and it, it'll sit there. Is it and the 27 or the 2600? The uh, 2700K oh, okay. is the one I have. So. Uh, and I bought it a long time ago. I think the original MSRP on it was about a thousand, if I remember right. What? Uh, I think so. I think it was. Maybe it was like eight hundred or so. I feel like it was up there. But uh, nowadays, you could get. Uh, I'm kind of surprised. You won't get that much better for that much more money. You could go out and spend five hundred, six hundred bucks and get something that's marginally better than what I have right now. Which is why I've kind of been reserving doing an upgrade. I don't know. I would argue that uh, my i7-4790 is probably like 30 to 60% faster than the 27 and 2600 series i7s. It's That's a number of generations back. Um, <laughs> one of the things that is night, well, is irritating about th- this particular release, the 6950X, is that uh, the LGA 2011 socket set is basically being cut off at the knees if you have a motherboard that was uh, in the previous generation because you know you're moving from ddr3 to ddr4 so not only is this an expensive upgrade in terms of cpu but it's also an expensive upgrade in terms of ram motherboard and so on now previously i did not upgrade to the lga 2011 socket set because 
I, I didn't want to get stuck with that and not have any path to move forward. Now I say that knowing that Intel will probably shoot me in the knees and get rid of my 1150 socket set that I'm currently using on my 4790. Do you think this at 1500 to $1,700 is worth it? Or would you be better off just buying an entire system uh, for, for most average editing? I, I would I would say you're usually better with an entire system. I mean, if we're talking about um, like my first system for editing, like something that people are like, hey, you know what? What should I look at if I was interested in PC editing and I want something better than you know that thing I picked up at Best Buy? Uh, all the time because companies going out of business and everything else. Amazon usually has really good deals on refurbished Dell XPS desktops. Ooh, cringe. Right, right. I know. I've but, had so many of those. Uh, I've seen so many of those go tu on people. There, there. You get them in. They have like a ninety or a hundred and twenty day warranty, and like a hundred and twenty two days in, the motherboard goes dead. <laughs> I even had that experience. Uh, I built out five edit bays with those, and they've been humming along for a couple of years. So I lucked out with them, but. Uh, you can get a pretty sizable amount of performance. Like for $800, you can get something that kind of should cost maybe $1,200. You can get a really good discount on it um, because they do get really devalued quickly when they all get dumped back onto the market. So I, I usually kind of recommend that as a first because it'll have an i7 and you get the one with you know a GTX or something like that. So you have a little bit of a boost in terms of uh, editing and things. So all in all, like for that, I go, that's uh, a good place to start. Me, I'm ready to get out of the uh, this old architecture. But, of course, that means a new motherboard, new RAM, uh, and a new CPU. And actually, I mean, it is it is pricey, but I was kind of considering spending 1000 on a CPU anyways just so I could reach a point where I'm looking at more than doubling what I currently have right now. Uh, seeing as I'm going to eventually be dealing with more 4K and more raw stuff where, uh, you know, you can never have enough power when you're dealing with raw. I can tell you my current system, the 4790, uh, maxed out 32 gigs of RAM, uh, three SSDs, I believe, of the one terabyte variety, as well as uh, backup drives and then a Titan X as my main GPU. Uh I am able to, for the most part, uh, plow through 4K footage without much issue. Uh, rendering times are fairly reasonable, a little bit long. Uh, I wouldn't mind getting a few more cores in my system, uh, but I'm probably going to hold off on my 4790 for another year or more to, to see what comes down the pike. And I'm kind of with you, Devin, where you're 2700 has held in for quite some time. It's because uh, for the longest time, the next generation was like, oh, you get 10%. Oh, you get 5%. Yeah. Oh, you get 8%. And it, at first, those gains aren't enough to really entice you. But when they start to add up and become cumulative, then suddenly, uh, man, I would love to see a half an hour knocked off at the time of this render here or like <laughs> cut this render in half there. Uh, so I won't be upgrading to uh, the uh, 6950X, but it is a sexy CPU and it's really nice that it's in consumer price ranges. Now, one last question. If you only had $1,000, not the let's not go used, what new parts would you throw into a system at that price uh in terms of an entire package yeah um 
You know, it would probably be somewhat of a mediocre uh, Asus board. I kind of like what they do with their fan profiles and other things. There's things I like about Asus motherboards. Um, not that they're the only ones. There's many other companies that make good ones, but I've had good experiences. You don't want to cheap out and go with like an Azrock uh, uh, <laughs> $99 or $89 special? I, I'm currently running on an Azrock, and it's a nightmare. Because my motherboard went out, I couldn't find the Asus that I wanted, and I needed to get an edit done. I bought an, uh, an Asrock, and the company refuses to respond to me. I've told them since I've bought this board brand new, after like five hours of being on, uh, their fan controller, which is supposed to, for the CPU, which is supposed to spin up when the CPU gets hotter, uh, just doesn't work it just sits the fan at 350 rpms and so every time i boot up the computer i have to manually set my cpu fan to 1500 rpms just to make sure that if i go to render something the cpu doesn't burn up and turn off are you plugged into the wrong socket no no absolutely it's reading the rpms it's plugged into the right socket it's a four pin it has control of it it i'm just giving you a hard time (laughs) it does exactly what it's supposed to for the first couple hours of use of my PC, and then it just gives up, and it reads the CPU temp as zero. Okay, okay, they, so and, less complaining. No ASRock, we got it. Well, what else? So uh, uh, um, mid-range motherboard. motherboard. Yeah, I don't care about RAM. Uh, I usually go for whatever's cheap, as long as it's like from Kingston, but Corsair, max it out, or right? some other you brand. You want to go with as much RAM as you can get. Uh, I would probably go with the 32. Yeah, I'd probably go with the 32, which would eat up maybe $500 of that budget. And then I'd spend 600 or 700 on a CPU. And that's how I'd package it. What about your GPU? I would keep I would keep my sixty eight hundred in yeah. terms of editing. It okay. does as much as it needs to. Let's back up. So for a new system, <laughs> if you have a thousand dollars, I would say yeah. cheapo motherboard. I would say mm-hmm. max out your RAM. So you're probably talking about ninety bucks for your motherboard. Probably uh, two fifty or so for your RAM. Uh, go with like an i five or an i7, maybe previous generation, if you can find it for cheap. Uh, So that puts you $300 or so on top of uh, your initial $350. So you're at six and some change. And it leaves you with about 400 and some change for a nice GPU. So then I would hit the used market and look for a GTX 780 Ti or possibly a GTX uh, 970, if you can find one of those in the or, $300 or get price a, range. Or get a, a 275. A GTX 275 will do just fine as well. What? If all you're, if, if all you're interested in is editing, uh, you can go look up those. Um, there's a, a good website that did some benchmarks on those cards, and you'd be surprised in terms of editing performance and CUDA performance how far a 275 goes compared to, say, like a 560 or a 670. You'd be really surprised. Okay, I've done benchmarks uh, against the 280, <laughs> the GTX 285, which was the right. original first uh, Mercury engine supported uh, right. playback rendering whatever, and the uh, GTX 680 and the 970. And I, I will tell you that the the GTX 285 is way long in the tooth. I mean, it was it was it a is, dog but in if it. you can pick one up for five bucks, I mean, the, the only benefit I can I can give you for the GTX 285 is that it's uh, capable of supporting both Intel and uh, Mac OSs. So if you're running like a Hackintosh mm. and you want to get yeah. the acceleration, I mean, uh, that's a, definitely an option. Although uh, now that uh, Kudu, CUDA is not the only thing supported, <laughs> it's not right. as big now of that, a deal. Yeah, and, and that's another thing too, is that I, uh, I've i seen side-by-side testing so far. 
you know, the plugins are kind of split down the middle in terms of what's supported by the OpenCL standard, which is mostly all your ATI cards, and what's supported by CUDA. And as far as I can see, it's starting to just not matter. As long as you have a good GPU, you're going to get that acceleration more or less with one way or another. If there's really a lot of certain plugins you use, then you may want to look at a specific card. All right, so we've kind of covered our, our PC usage. Now we're both rocking <laughs> editing laptops as well. Uh, yeah. What are you, what are you using, Devin? Uh, I'm using uh, the brand new. Um, Look at it's him a stall. gigabyte. Yeah, no, it's a gigabyte, fourteen inch laptop because I like it small. Uh, it runs a sixty-seven hundred HQ, uh, which is a little bit faster than what DJ has in his. And then it's got a GTX 970, which is the same thing he has in his. It's kind of old tire technology, but we haven't seen GPUs, uh, NVIDIA GPUs, bump up until very recently with the 1070 and 1080. So They have crammed, I think, a GTX 980 into a mobile platform that's under 10 pounds, if you really want to get crazy. <laughs> under uh, 10 pounds. <laughs> on my end, I'm still rocking my uh, two-year-old or one-and-a-half-year-old MSI uh, GT60. So if you're in the market for that, uh, you can find those pretty cheap. Mine is the uh, uh, 256 gig SSD variant, and I've modded it. And there's a video out on that uh, to add a one terabyte SSD as well as a 512 gig SSD to give you a little bit more wiggle room when editing. My CPU is a little bit older than Devin's, but, uh, you know, not I'm by not going to get rid of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime in the near term. No, All right, and now that we've... It's impressive. Oh, well, and, and one one more thing, since we are talking about edit systems, if you are on Premiere, there's a very big update that could significantly impact uh, what you're able to edit with in Premiere, and that is that the new version of Premiere is going to start doing background uh, rendering of proxy files uh, yeah. because rather than fixing the problem of really poor H.264 performance on the timeline, they're just going to render proxies to make up for that. So with that being the case... Uh, having an underpowered CPU and having an underpowered GPU uh, may not be as big of a deal once the system creates uh, more native proxies with a mezzanine codec that is easier for the system to apply effects to and edit through and play back. And that could at least mean that the editing portion uh, is is a lot smoother. Uh, your rendering portion is still going to be, you know, as crappy as whatever you have on hand. But uh, that's something excited that I'm excited for because I think it means, hey, you know, 4K editing and stuff like that can be a lot more comfortable on a mobile platform. All right, moving on. Let's talk about something that's less comfortable. How about camera delays? Uh, if you're in the market for a new Nikon or Sony camera, specifically the A6300 and some of Nikon's latest offerings, uh, you might be in for a unfortunate side effect of the earthquakes that happened recently. Uh, they damaged several Sony factories that produce sensors, and now because of this, we're seeing delays uh, from multiple camera manufacturers, and there's even rumor that Olympus has been pushed back with their OMD-1 Mark II because of these image sensor delays. Now, Devin, are you sad that you won't have a A6300 on the table uh, by Christmas for yourself? I, you know, I was... And actually, Christmas I, I, is probably always out. I, I, let's yeah, say by probably. 4th of July. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the 6300, I, I've been interested in, but I haven't been yearning for. Uh, but I do know a lot of people, a lot of photographers that are really disappointed by the, um, 
the fact that the the new version of the D4, the Nikon D4, came out, and now there's going to be some D5. trouble getting their hands on it. D5, is it? Okay, my yes. apologies. Um, I'm not an Nikon shooter, you can tell. <laughs> um, but uh, I know uh, some buddies of mine are very disappointed that uh, that's not going to be around in rental houses and stuff like that. And there's really no clear indication on how long this shortage will go on for. Uh, so, you know, it's it, it, it could it hopefully doesn't mean uh, delays for uh, anything else, because, I mean, besides Olympus, uh, I still don't think that there's a lot of things using Sony sensors besides the action camera market. It's really big in. But I think no, no. Nikon has several bodies that are using uh, Sony Nikon sensors. Does, yeah. And uh, Olympus uses uh, some Sony sensors. Also, I believe, doesn't uh, doesn't Pentax also use? Yeah, I think Pentax is a, a Sony sensor, Sony too, sensor as well. Right. I, I believe it's the same one out of the A7 line. So there's there's three brands that are affected in just uh, DSLR. And, and how and, many like, of those kind of cameras do you buy? Uh, I mean, I have an <laughs> A7S Mark II that has a Sony sensor in it. Yeah. without saying, yeah, that's it. You own okay. one camera with a Sony sensor. All right, you you win. No, <laughs> well, no, yes, okay, you do. You win this round, Devin, because I was mm-hmm. trying to think of what's in the E1, but that's a that's actually a Panasonic sensor. That's, so that's the, the same one that's in one, the yeah. GH4. Uh, exactly. So, yeah, uh, it's not going to affect me personally. Uh, the D5 does look to be a beautiful, interesting full frame SLR, and compared to the results of Canon's offerings and. Devin, have you watched any of the reviews on the D five hundred? Uh, yeah, I've, oh I've seen lots of good things. Lots that of people, thing is uh, gorgeous looking. It. And if yeah. if the D five, uh, obviously, it's going to be a step up from there. If that's the case, uh, I can see tons of pro photographers uh, jumping well, onto and, that as soon as it's. And available. that's what's unfortunate is because when these cameras start coming out, it's so important for them to get into hands right away of reviewers, of customers, and everything else, so that. Uh, you know, you can kind of start building the buzz about the camera and get more people interested in reading about it. And this just puts kind of like a complete halt to that, which is really unfortunate. Um, because, Do you think you know, this is fortunate for, fortunate for Canon, though? Because Canon usually, it seems like Nikon will come out with something and then Canon mm-hmm. will wait a little while and then come out with something either as good or a little bit better. They usually incorporate some of the uh, video features right. or whatever, like with the 5D Mark III, uh, when Nikon announced, yeah, we have clean HDMI out, like then there was a firmware update to the 5D Mark III to uh, add clean right. HDMI out without <laughs> yeah. audio. Thanks, Canon. Um, so, right, so do right. you think uh, the 5D Mark IV, will this be a benefit when it, it it's possibly announced at uh, Photokina coming up here if- in October? October? Yeah, I mean, if they're still having issues getting product out uh, by the time the Mark IV comes up, uh, then yeah, they're going to have trouble trying to. Um, I'm not necessarily going to say like it would make a shift in market share, uh, but it definitely would get people to like stop remembering that Nikon does make some really fantastic cameras, and it's uh, capable they don't of shooting about 4K cameras. You know, compared to <laughs> Canon's current line, right? Right, exactly. And so it's a. Uh, uh, so it it could hurt them this year in terms of potential sales and everything else if uh, you know Canon then announces a Mark IV and you know Christmas starts coming around and there isn't nearly as much talk of, of you know the Nikon camp compared to the Canon camp. So uh, you know only time will tell and hopefully the, they'll get out of this situation quickly. But it really is a tragedy. 
Uh, we've got links in the show notes, guys, if you're interested in reading more on it, to several of the press releases from both Sony, uh, Nikon, and a, a fairly interesting video uh, from the guys over at the, I believe it's the, the camera store.tv, uh, talking about uh, why the A6300 won't be out uh, or won't be available for purchase for quite some time. Uh, those are all really kind of sad stories, and hopefully they'll get back up to full production soon. Moving on down the line, let's talk about Frame IO again. This is something we've <laughs> talked about several times. I don't use it; don't know a ton about mm-hmm. it. So I'm going to throw this over to you, Devin. Tell me sure. why should I be excited about <laughs> the latest iteration of Frame IO? Uh, well, for one thing, it shows that Frame IO is really attacking. Uh, what I consider a completely open market right now. Frame.io, frame there's been a few other that uh, do it as well, and it's basically you upload your video to their service, and then you can send a link out to clients, and it's supposed to prevent them, for one thing, kind of usually from stealing the video, uh, but also allow them to easily add time markers and notes. So instead of like a long list of time codes and some notes or like, some clients who don't even bother with time markers and they just type up notes being like, oh, you need to make this shot bigger. And you're like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, all that kind of stuff uh, gets taken care of here because as you leave comments with these services, they go ahead and make time markers for it automatically. Um, and all of them were kind of competing for price. There wasn't a whole lot of people competing in features. Uh, more or less, kind of like here or there, there was some interesting stuff, but nothing that was groundbreaking. And then Frame.io just came out, uh, I think literally two months ago, with a built-in plugin for Premiere. So if you're a Premiere shooter, you can literally render clips out to Frame.io as well as receive the notes and the content inside of Premiere itself. And it's not like... That's a totally necessary feature. Uh, you know, a lot of this software is still useful if you have to go to a website to look up notes, but it just makes it so much more seamless and quicker to work through. And then just to, like, you know, hit it again, Frame.io came out with this iOS app that seems really well put together. If you watch the video, it's a really nice-looking app. It doesn't look like something they just shopped together in a month. Uh, and it's I, this is going to be targeted for those people who are leaving notes. Uh, to provide a better way to work through it. Now, obviously, if you're doing uh, client business with, uh, you know, maybe not so much creative individuals, more like company owners and stuff like that, the website's going to be fine for them. But if you're part of like a creative team that are all working with each other constantly, this frame IO means that, hey, you know, the, there's no escape from the office. Your boss is going to keep sending you notes and crap while you're at home and it'll ping up on your phone. But uh, you know, for some people, I see this being a really useful feature uh, to keep them in touch with where the project's at and the revision control and all the other stuff that comes with this, I guess you could call it reviewing software or critique software. Because um, right now, no one else is hitting the market this hard. And Frame.io used to have a, be really pricey, and that's why I avoided them. Uh, but they dropped their price. They improved their platform. They became native inside of Premiere, and now they have an iOS iOS app. No talks of an Android app. That's usually how filmmaking tools go. You know, Androids are just an afterthought. But still, it's really exciting to see somebody who's making this great... They obviously see a space in the market for it, and they're really hitting it hard, and I think that that's fantastic. Um, And it makes me more likely to buy into it. I still don't have a subscription yet. I've used the trial a lot. I've played with it. I really like it. Uh, I just don't... I don't know. I don't work with enough clients that this is required for me, but... 
well, all your studio work. I mean, really, yeah. when are you going to need to do that sort of thing? I'm yeah. I'm still kind of lazy. Uh, I'll just <laughs> I'll just ship off like a 720p versions of my footage with a watermark on it, and if they're ambitious enough to uh, try and cut around it or zoom in and steal <laughs> the footage. I mean, I use the standard DSLR film noob logo across the bottom, which is is pretty long and covers the entire screen. They're going to have to to work to get rid of that. And if they do, <laughs> I mean, really, what are you doing working with these people? What kind yeah. of person does that to you? Especially if you know you've shot a bunch of stuff. Uh, plus, I usually take money up front. I, I don't know how well, you stop working for crappy clients too. That's what I always yeah. tell people when people give me those horror stories. I'm like, all right, l- try to figure out why, how to like understand these people and how to like pick them out of a crowd, yeah. so that next time you go to a client meeting, you go, nope, you're not worth it. You're not worth the headache. I mean, I'm really glad too that I now just have a full time job as opposed to uh, you know trying to scab business left and right. It's it's nice to not have to worry about uh, uh, keeping up with that type of pay. But uh, it, at the same time, I still do take some independent contract work uh, here and there. And you know what? Uh, uh, they pay me at least half up front, and I give them mm-hmm. hours ahead of time, and then. You know, if we go over or we're under, we discuss that and I get paid. The only issue I have for myself these days is remembering to bill out. So, you know, like, you know, everybody wants their money, but uh, sometimes you bill out and then it could be, depending on the client you're working for, 30 days to 60 days uh, before they actually Mm -hmm. pay you. So if you don't send out... Yeah, exactly. And if you don't... Sometimes I worked... I did a job for an oil company... One time they were they were doing these like these small ads for drilling in areas to make people feel better about uh, their stuff. And it was, it was really awful. Like, I, I, I don't feel that guilty about it because I got money out of it. But I, I feel enough guilty that I was promoting them. But it, it, they don't pay you for 90 days. And yeah. when you go to them, you're like, hey, uh, you know, this is outstanding. It's 90 days. They're like, we don't pay anybody in less mm-hmm. than 90 days. You're lucky we don't move you to 120 days. Now get out of our face. And <laughs> yeah, I just had to take it. Like, the, what am I going to do? You know, go after right. them? Uh, no. I, so you send in an invoice, and if you send in your invoice a month and a half or two months after the work is complete, then expect another 90 days minimum before you get paid for it. And, and that's just how it was with them. And it wasn't just me. Like, uh, there was suppliers that would send them stuff and uh, they wouldn't pay the suppliers for the equipment before 90 day mark and they're like you know we do enough business with you you don't like us uh, we'll go somewhere else too bad and that's unfortunate but at least you get paid i suppose all right that's enough complaining about (laughs) uh getting paid all right let's talk about small rig i've got some small rig gear you've got some small rig gear uh both of us have cobbled together weird kits out of different things and in fact right here i can show you with my extra cam i have a small rig rig on yeah. my webcam that i'm actually using to shoot this podcast now devin you've got one of those uh rosettes here in the mm-hmm. show notes uh tell me more about this and tell me about your rig in general uh sure so for um uh for my shoulder rig i'm a big evf guy and i know that me both me uh or dj over here is not an evf guy but i am and i and i really appreciate having an evf and so what this allowed me to do 
was create a small package where it's securely attached. There's uh, quarter 20s in the side of the handle, as most handles do. And this is uh, this NATO rail, as you see um, in the images and other things, allows the EVF to slide forward and backwards. It allows me to spin it. There's actually a small friction mount on it, too. So it does allow me to kind of turn it and play with it as I do it. But all of that being said, it's... Um, it's the fact that it's secure because I really want something that doesn't move when I bounce around and I want something that's uh, tight and that if I like lay the camera down on it, it's not going to move. Before, I was kind of using a ball joint, but then I'd have to loosen it if I wanted to tilt it or do something like that. Um, and it wasn't in the perfect position. Uh, th- just simply having a NATO rail and having a rosette that I could unlock and lock gives me enough mobility that I can get the EVF right where I want it to be, um, which in my case works great for... Uh, putting it right on my eyeball. So, um, in this case, it's uh, it's so, just one of those like really neat things. It's like this thing was like fifty bucks, and it does exactly what I needed to. And I so love for it the audio listeners. This is basically a, a rosette connector that locks into place on a NATO rail adapter that slides back and forth on the top of Devin's rig. Uh, the The monitor then attaches via that rosette to the the side of your what is that an F and D. Yeah, that's a FNV um, uh, four-inch uh, EVF. So that's what's connecting that all together. Now, Devin, I'm showing the pictures here yeah. uh, from the show notes. This little connector right here, uh, do you have any problems with that slipping at all on you? Uh, not yet, and it's not one that I usually mess with. I know that it's got a plastic bushing inside of it, which I'm not thrilled by, uh, but it's one of those two that there isn't really a better solution out there. I've tried uh, Eldercron had kind of a friction mount that you're supposed to be able to tilt and i just hated how big it was and it was like a big l bracket and like i'm sure it works for a lot of people but it just didn't work for me it was too big and i'm like i really need something that's tight and is close to the handle and a lot of those kind of systems that allow you to rotate something or spin something you're talking about using 15 millimeter rail adapters or other things like that to get it to work and um all of them were bulky and was a lot of pieces and in this case it's literally if I unlock the, uh, it, it's it's literally just this piece, which um, is like fifty bucks for a rosette and NATO on the other side, and it's like two inches big, and then it was you know uh, twelve bucks or whatever for a NATO rail to stick on the side, and that's it. And so it's like with those two pieces, I have a super secure mount that I'm not afraid of uh, letting go of or bouncing around in the back of a car or anything like that. And it still gives me enough just, uh, adjustability that I can make it perfectly fit my face, um, which is also another big point, too, as opposed to, like, using a magic arm, where you you wouldn't, like, rest your camera on a magic arm because it's going to undo it and unspin it and make a huge mess. So on my end, I have not had good luck with uh, the small rig positioning arms. Uh, their NATO rails and some of the other stuff are, are pretty good in general, but uh, trying to rest a even a medium-sized monitor on the longer extension arm, uh, I've had some sag on that, and sometimes uh, it'll just lose its spot and come loose. And when Devin mentioned the plastic bushing, the issue is actually they use a half a half circle bushing that doesn't quite cover the inside of the grip and the way it tightens down is it squeezes on that from one point and the issue is is if the open portion is somewhere other than uh, where it's supposed to be for the squeeze it doesn't squeeze down because it actually kind of collapses like a a c Mm -hmm. sort of 
and you don't get enough grip on there to hold your item in place. So then you have to take the two screws out, rotate the bushing inside of there to the right position, and then put it back together again. And that's not a huge issue for the price, but it is kind of frustrating when you move your arms a couple times and then all of a sudden your bushing inside is in the wrong place and you can't get your arm to stick into place. And definitely something to keep in mind if you're going to readjust your rig on a regular basis. I would love to see something like this that has the rosettes on every single Mm -hmm. coupling position. And I know there are a few companies out there making them, but they are pretty spendy. I want to say three or four hundred dollars to get one of the setups from uh, Red Rock Micro, I think, carries one. Red Rock is one of them. Yeah, there's and, uh, a few companies that make them, and uh, you know I appreciate what uh, Small Rig is trying to do because they're trying to make it adjustable, use a friction-based yeah. mount, so you can kind of have what a camcorder has, which is usually or like your DSLR, your LCD screen flip out. That's like a friction mount system for holding it at whatever angle you position it, and they're trying to accomplish the same thing here, but there's a lot more weight. It's a bit harder to do, and so in some cases too. I would just prefer if I had rosettes on all points and tighten it down and it's going to sit exactly where it's at and I don't have to worry about it moving again. You know what else does a really good job and I haven't seen it implemented in very many cases. Uh, there was a rig that used it, but uh, I'll talk about that in a second. The The ram mount balls. Uh, if you've ever done any car installations, uh, it's a ball and socket system that you twist in the middle and it locks down both balls in whatever position. So it gives you oh, all yeah. this swinging okay. room and it's it's pretty easy to use. And uh, I believe there's a rig called the Medusa, and I, I forget, I think it's a Cinovate rig, if I remember correctly, that mm-hmm. basically implements the RAM mount balls in a format that uh, allows you to attach monitors and so on. I would love to see a maybe a design where it's the NATO rail adapter with mm-hmm. a RAM mount style ball at the end of it that, you know, there is no loose parts. It's maybe right. soldered on or something like that. And then you could go from there to your EVF or to your monitor holder or something like that. That to me would be really ideal because locking those down, it's one twist in the middle that un- loosens both balls. You position it in place, you lock it back down again and let go and you're good to go. And those have like a, a rubber coating, I believe, on them that Usually. gives you the yeah. grip and they they have nice big handles that are easy to twist. They grip really well. I, I love I've, those things. I've got them for, and actually what you're referring to is the tablet mount I'm using for my uh, for my keyboard over here. It actually uses that system to position it. And unlike a magic arm, uh, with the way that it's made, you really don't have to worry about it kind of becoming unscrewed or undone. Uh, and in my experiences, using that kind of a system is super tight. And you're right. It, that would be a, a, a really good solution uh, to this problem of like cameras that don't come with EVFs or don't come with good screens. How do you get a good screen on there in a way that you can trust and uh, you know don't have to worry about flopping over on you in the middle of a shot? Now, uh, I was trying to find one in the studio, and I I have a bunch of them, but I think they're uh, packed up in bags uh, somewhere. Uh, (laughs) But uh, one thing I'm going to be trying with those is, uh, remember that uh, monitor we saw at uh, NAB, the Fuel World monitor, that uh, 5-inch 1080p IPS screen? Yes. I pulled the trigger on that guy. 
Um, you can't really get it online right now, but uh, I did get some contact information from uh, and you the know a distributor, guy. and I know a guy. And so <laughs> I put in a call to them, and I'm 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 getting one of those uh, in the next uh, two to three weeks. I, I believe it's set up for an LPE six battery, and that little five inch monitor has uh, quarter twenty mounts all the way around it. And I think maybe just putting a ram mount ball on there, and then using that with maybe the, I can. I think small rig sells a quarter 20 to NATO rail adapter uh, yeah. of some kind. I'm pretty sure they do. And so if I could get a, like a, a blank NATO rail squeeze adapter and maybe a ram mount ball on there, that would be mm-hmm. uh, an interesting thing to, to check out. I'm going to have to give it a try because the problem with the ram mount balls is that the, uh, the middle portion that squeezes down on the two balls can get kind of bulky if you're mm-hmm. putting two or three of them together. And they do make like a, a dog bone style where it has two of them, uh, two balls attached. So you can go from one to the other without having to like couple screws or what have you. But uh, I don't know. I, I kind of want to try that now. Uh, speaking of the monitor, just a side note. Uh, and I saw this on uh, B&H the other day. Um, that particular Fuel World monitor, uh, the five inch, I, I think it's like the C55 or something like that, uh, is available for $700. Uh, if you get on Alibaba, really? you can find that monitor uh, for somewhere in the price range of about five hundred bucks. So if really? you want to save, if you want to save a couple hundred bucks on that, uh, it will take you a while to get it shipped. Uh, it does come over from uh, China, so figure three of to course. five weeks if you want that. But uh, it's all aluminum. You can get it in either an LPE6 or an NP style Sony battery. And they were pretty sexy in uh, in the Vegas showroom floor. I really liked looking at it. It looked as uh, I think all the the five inch monitors that we saw that mm-hmm. were in the, the the sort of the Chinese section of NAB floor room had the same IPS display. Would you agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't like, seeing. The the lily put that we saw, the screen looked just about the same as the screen that we saw on the Fuel Fuel World, and there was a couple other off-brands that we saw. Uh, Probably not the same screen that they're using in the the small HD monitors, but... No, but it's... I mean, but we've seen this before, right? Like, uh, lily put monitors across the line, they tend to all be using the same display. It's just that this year, they all got, like... a pretty good step up in displays i mean they're all looking like ips's that are full hd uh, with pretty decent uh blacks and range and everything else so no usually the small hd and all the other uh you know are using much higher units but i think you're right i think just about every five inch screen we saw there was probably the exact same ips display i actually did want to buy the uh, Lilliput, but uh it won't be on the market for another month or three so uh, <laughs> I, I, you, you got beat it's that open ended, huh? Now speaking of Lilliput, let's talk about their uh, new SDI adapters. Devin threw this in the show notes, and uh, I want to thank Devin by the way because my schedule was a little off and he couldn't do the show on Sunday, so Devin kind of filled in most of the show notes this week. Devin, tell me about these SDI adapters. Well, uh, the what stinks is that we don't have a price on it uh, because with Lilliput, that's usually where – the reason why we talk about their products is because of their pricing. In this situation, uh, we see a whole lot of uh, SDI to DVI. We see VGA to SDI um, as well as HDMI to and from different formats uh, to analog as well, you know, with um, – 
your component and everything else. So uh, they say this will be competitively priced. I imagine that means they'll probably be quite a few steps under black magic. And of course, you know, no idea on quality or how well these hold up or perform. Uh, but what's interesting too, is that it's not just these monitors. Uh, what we don't have images up because well, frankly, they'd be boring anyways, uh, is a bunch of rack mounted gear from Lilliput, And we're talking about, uh, matrix switchers and multi-view systems. Uh, now what, what's going to be interesting to see what pricing Lilliput comes out with these, because these kind of systems by, um, uh, SA and other American brands for doing matrix switching and multi-view systems and studios, you're usually talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for these kind of systems. So it'll be interesting to see what price point they come in at because this is something that Blackmagic really hasn't hit yet. We know Blackmagic has invested interest in studio gear uh, with all their converter boxes and their panels and other rack-mounted accessories. Uh, but they haven't really attacked uh, doing video routing as well as multi-view. And for those uh, uninitiated, usually what multi-view is is that, yes, when you buy a Blackmagic switcher, it has a multi-view output. So most people are like, I don't need a multi-view uh, because you know my switcher came with one. And, and that's true for the most part, but if you really want to customize the size and position and labeling and other things, and you want to have multiple multi-view systems that all show different things, uh, that's why most studios have a separate multi-view system that takes in all these inputs and actually builds out the multi-view for whatever workflow works for them. And they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars doing that. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see where Lilliput comes in with this because Blackmagic has already kind of knocked the price down, really, if you're uh, like starting up television production or a YouTube production or something like that to be like, man, for a couple, like less than $10,000, you can have a, a multi-cam studio setup and do live video switching with graphics and other things. Um, and Lilliput may be wanting some of that pie and be like, hey, you know what? We can also like step it up a bit and do some more stuff for uh, what I'm hoping for is just going to be a couple thousand dollars for uh, matrix switchers and other things like that. So working for a low-budget TV station, uh, that's why I keep my eye on this kind of stuff because, well, first off, for some people who need converters, I, am, I, I imagine these converters are going to be under $200 easy. Uh, just knowing Lilliput in their market. Uh, but as well, for building out other things, it's going to be really interesting to see what their pricing is. We saw at NAB this year, we saw, like, what, probably four or five different companies uh, selling uh, very generic-looking little boxes that were converters from mini SDI yes. to all kinds of things. And they were quoting prices in the like 150 to $250. And remember those really cute little... Uh, Three-inch monitors? Yeah, yeah, they were three-inch monitors. They were like 60, 640 by uh, uh, 380 or something weird like that. Right. And they were also a, a mini SDI to mm -hmm. HDMI converter built in. Would something I, like that work in a matrix uh, configuration for uh, that sort of application? Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, that's um, the for the size and price and everything else, the, that's one of those kind of, uh, I guess I call them a Band-Aid solution where... Uh, sometimes you're like, oh, I want to monitor this, and I also need to send this off to another place to get uh, recorded or something like that. Uh, having the ability to convert uh, as well as pass through is super useful on just about anything. I mean, that's why I got an EVF that goes HDMI to SDI. Um, 
And that's why I look at a lot of gear that can do cross conversions because it saves you from having to get another box if and when that event comes up where you need to do something like that. Uh, Especially, too, if you're working at large venues, uh, large college theaters and stuff like that, most of their systems are going to be SDI. So you can come in with a camera, but then if you want that camera to be on the projector and it's a DSLR, you're going to need a converter box and a bunch of other stuff. So um, I did look into that company that we found the tiny converters for. Uh, I pestered around and I emailed a lot of people and basically just couldn't find any information to actually get my hands on one. You'd be surprised. They were on the floor. They were showing them off. They were saying how much they were. And then I couldn't buy one no matter who I asked. So they weren't available in any stores. Um, I think the monitors were, but the converter boxes themselves were advertised on a website, but there was no information on where to buy it, which is a little unfortunate. So uh, that's why Alibaba for for those. I'm pretty sure I checked that. I'm pretty sure I checked that. Maybe they aren't coming out yet and they're going to come out later, but I checked through Alibaba. I didn't see it on there. So dang. Maybe so you can it's, it's, start a retail market where you buy like a hundred of them and then resell yeah, them go. at a markup of fifty bucks a pop. Uh, that's that, exactly. Like a, so I, it's um, but yeah, that's it's exciting to see that stuff. Of course, you know questions and reliability and everything else can't be answered until people start using this stuff. But I'm super excited because it looks like some really cheap gear to do stuff that you need to do usually in a studio situation. All right, we've pretty much nailed all of the show notes here. Devin, I'm going to surprise you with a pick of the week. Uh, We used to do this all the time, and then we kind of got away from it for a little while. I just wanted to bring up um, uh, Devin and I, we kind of talked about this earlier. At NAB, my uh, travel tripod was kind of long in the tooth, and I've been testing out a Mifoto uh, Globetrotter, and this is the carbon fiber variant. It's smaller than my regular travel tripod, or my old, uh, I think it was Senki uh, travel tripod. And a lot of you guys were actually, I got a couple of emails uh, saying like, eh, be really careful uh, with the twists on this, uh, because apparently if you uh, twist too hard, they can snap loose and there's just plastic on the inside. Um, I have been experimenting with that, and I can say that uh, this requires very little force to fully lock. So if you have one of these, do not twist hard on these little twist locks because you can break them. Uh, but otherwise, a uh, really great tripod for the price. I think I paid uh, $2.99 for this carbon fiber flavored one. Uh, you can find it if you look on on eBay, uh, after big shows like NAB, uh, they generally, somebody goes out and buys up all the stock of the showroom floor stuff and you can get an off the, off the showroom floor, a copy of this for a hundred to $200 less than the retail price. Uh, otherwise I think this retails for about uh, 350 to $400, but definitely a lot of reach, uh, really great tripod, been loving this. And uh, other than that caveat about being cautious of how tight you uh turn these it's i i like it personally um this is probably going to be traveling with me quite a bit my other one made it uh two to three maybe four years and this guy will probably do the same really like this tripod Devin, do you have a pick of the week yeah of course i have a pick of the week even though you didn't warn me about it um (laughs) my my pick of the week is um it's it's nothing new but it's new to me because now i own one uh, is a Tandem 70. Uh, this right here, uh, which I'm holding up, and I apologize for our audio listeners, 
uh, is a gold mount battery charger. But more than that, it's also a gold mount power source. Uh, so to give you an example of how that works is on a rig uh, or a camera that has a gold mount plate, you take this guy uh, and you mount him in your gold mount. And then you have a standard uh, power outlet that you hook up an ordinary power cable to. Okay. And this, this Tandem 70 then can run the camera. On top of that, while it's running the camera, you can put a battery onto it. If I can figure out where it is. And put charge a battery, the battery onto it. Yes. Put a battery onto it, and it'll charge the battery while it runs the camera. And then if you're in the middle of some kind of live shoot or something and the power goes out, it'll automatically switch to battery power and power the camera off of that battery. So it's the perfect solution for when you're running around, you can plug it in. If you lose power, somebody steps on a power strip or something like that, the camera keeps running. There's no issues. Um, And it allows you to keep your battery charged while also giving you kind of that failover for when you're setting up for a long shot or something like that or a live hit. And, uh, you know, you can't have your camera going out during a live hit. So... uh, these guys tend to be pretty expensive. I bought one used for about 160 but most of the time people are going to want $300 for it because these puppies usually go for more than 400 brand new. So, uh, But if you search around on eBay, you may find you know some guy who's getting out of uh, video and, uh, like I lucked out, end up with one for you know less than 200 Now, the other thing, uh, Devin, didn't you post a, a little DIY video on adapting... Uh, battery plates on different LED monitors recently. Yes, yes I did. Yeah, because... Um, <laughs> Leaving me hanging. Uh, yeah, everything's gold mount. Uh, some people have asked to make a video about it, and I'm, I'm sure I will, uh, maybe uh, this week or next week, about gold mounts. But uh, for, the, you know, for the fans and the listeners right now, to, for those who are interested in uh, bigger batteries and bigger battery solutions... Uh, there's V-mount, there's gold mount, and I've said it on the podcast before. Most people go with gold mount. Most news stations go with gold mount because gold mount doesn't come off. Uh, V-mount sometimes does, but a lot of people use V-mount because it's cheaper. Um, so, and that, and there's not the proprietary, like, Anton Bauer thing. Because, for example, I have a Anton Bauer Dionic, Di, Dionic battery or something like that that can only be charged by an official Anton Bauer charger, uh, which is annoying. If, if you want a cheap charger. So, uh, but gold mount batteries uh, are usually the way to go. Most of your LEDs out of China, even if they're really nice LEDs, they don't always come with gold mounts. So, uh, which was funny because actually I'm not the only one who's about having gold mounts. Uh, we've talked a lot about Aperture. We like a lot of Aperture's products. And I was watching a YouTube video or a YouTube channel uh, called Sam and Nico Corridor Digital. And they got some product from Aperture, and when they opened up the boxes, they went, awesome, gold mounts, because that's exactly what they use, and that's what they want. And that's what a lot of DPs like is the gold mounts over the V mounts. And usually from China, you kind of expect to get uh, V mounts because it's cheaper and they don't care. So, yes, there's a video on our channel where I used a 3D printer, which you could also use wood or anything else, to really quickly solder on a new adapter plate so I can keep all my stuff gold mount, and I don't need to run two battery systems. Awesome, man. Thanks for putting that together. That was uh, pretty handy. And if, uh, oh, you don't have a, do. if you don't have a 3D printer, we do have a link to the 3D printed design. Uh, you can take that to uh, Shapeway or one of the other places that allows you to get a 3D print of something done for you at a if, price. And if you are going to do that, uh, just kind of double check the, uh, the holes out because... 
the the holes the way I have them placed is actually very common if you're buying cheap gold mounts and uh, they're using cheap V mounts. Uh. But since there's different manufacturers, there are oddballs in the mix where you may end up with a gold mount that has different screw positions, or the V mount that it comes with may have different screw positions. Mine is the most common that I've found, but that doesn't mean that that's what will work for you. So something to keep in mind. Awesome, man. Anything else you got before we end the show? Uh... No, other than I'm angry that Anton Bauer requires Anton Bauer chargers. That's about it. Even this battery, which is the first Anton Bauer, I think, that doesn't require an official Anton Bauer charger, will only charge to 96% unless it's an Anton Bauer charger. So, man, I, yep. I don't know. I, I guess I'm happy that I'm not having to deal with a lot of those battery issues. <laughs> All right. On that note, guys, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching the DSLR Film New Podcast. Uh, you can find Devin at DevoCut.com. You can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can also find both of us on Twitter. I'm at DSLRFilmNoob. Devin, you are at DevoCut. Devo Oh, man, I'm almost nailing this today. Nailed it. Uh, Be sure to leave questions, comments, and concerns and complaints in the show notes as, I mean, in the YouTube comments section. Check out the show notes for links to everything that we've talked about as well as the pick of the week there. And thanks again for watching and listening. Be sure to rate and subscribe to the show slash podcast because we love having you guys out there. Tell a friend. Tell another friend. He'll tell a friend. And we'll see you next time on DSLR Film Noob.